AJT readers, this is Josh Levitsky. I'm a hepatologist at uh, Northwestern in Chicago. Today I am joined by Roz Manon, who is now at University of Nebraska Medical Center. And also uh, we have a guest today for our AJT highlights, Angela Maldonado, who works at Hansa Biopharma, but was the author of a very important paper that I'm going to uh, introduce in a few minutes. So welcome both of you for to our February's edition of AJT Highlights. Thanks for having me, Josh and Roz. You're welcome. All right. All right. So let's get started. Um, we're going to do these in order. We, uh, of, uh, we're going to start with uh, Angela's paper. In fact, it's her paper, but it's actually a paper of lots and lots of authors. So we'll talk about that in a minute. We're going to start off with the C4 article, which is Challenges and Solutions to Appropriate and Timely Medication Access and Transplantation in the United States. And Angela will be, is the, this is actually the first time we've had the author of the paper on this podcast. So Angela will be discussing her article. Then we'll have Roz uh, move into the kidney papers. And we have three of them for these highlights. Uh, the first one is um, proteasomal adaptations underlying carfilzomib resistance in human bone marrow plasma cells by Woodall et al. The next one is kind of a, a similar uh, topic of um, plasma cell or, or interest in this um, carfilzomib therapy, a prospective iterative adaptive trial of carfilzomib-based desensitization by Tremblay et al., and then Roz will finish with a clinical paper on uh, entitled Long-Term Outcomes in Patients with Obesity and Renal Disease After Sleeve Gastrectomy by Kassam et al. And then I will finish the podcast with a paper on liver transplantation for colorectal metastases. And this was um, an, done by uh, Doolin et al. with an editorial uh, accompanying it to discuss. So I think I want to give a little introduction to the C4 and have Angela take it from there. We've had one C4 article previously, and what C4 stands for is Current Controversial Collaborative Crowdsource Knowledge. Mm. And this was introduced by Alan Kirk in 2018, an initiative, which is basically an experiment in which um, a topic is put forth and the community is allowed to comment on this topic and provide input and to have a academic dialogue and then put this, take all of that and have it put into a paper that summarizes the community's opinions on the topic. So it's a real crowdsourcing. And for this uh, year's C4 article and the, the expectation is to do this uh, every year, this is all on medication access and transplantation and um, a lot of interaction with the transplant community, but uh, in this instance, uh, patients and patients as stakeholders. So Angela, maybe um, if you could start talking about your paper and what you found and, and maybe the impact on our field. Sure. So I do want to clarify that I am not the only author on this that right. Over 70 contributors. I would I would characterize myself as the herder of cats. Uh, for paper. So, but you know, we 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 saw or we read that first C4 article, and then when Alan wrote the editorial and really 
put it out there as to would there be a second C4? I think the transplant pharmacists were crazy excited and we jumped on it. And so we submitted our topic to Alan and thankfully it was accepted. But the genesis of this actually came about over more than you know a year. So Lisa Potter and I went to the um, patient summit in Washington, D.C. And we heard firsthand from patients there how difficult um, of a time they had just getting their hands on medications. Mm. And, you know, it was it was so impactful to us to hear if people are saying that they are afraid to go back to work because they would lose um, insurance coverage from a certain standpoint and lose medication coverage. And the whole point of transplantation is to get people back to living a full life, including the option of going back to work. So it was very heartbreaking for all of us there. And then a couple months after that, Medicare changed their ruling about bedside delivery of immunosuppressants, which created a you know a cluster and how to get patients their medications in their hands before they left the hospital. And then so I think you know with Lisa Potter, Dave Tabor, and myself as the leaders of the transplant pharmacy group at that point, we felt that this was a topic that's really impacting our community. Um, our patients, and we really needed to come together and talk about it in a, a logical manner. But we really were clear that we didn't want an article of just complaints and all the things that suck about the workarounds and daily slog. So we really wanted the C4 and all the contributors to talk not only about the problems of medication access, but really propose solutions. So I'm really interested, Roz and Josh, in your take on what you you took from the paper um, as you were going through that because we really wanted to focus on here's what you can actually do about some of these problems so yeah what were some of your opinions on that yeah i mean i did appreciate the tone of not complaining <laughs> negative i like the fact that there were comments about patient education you know i think you know, the issue of practically applying this to more than one or two people, I don't know if that was something that you talked about, because you do provide some suggestions about recommended resources, but it, you know, coming from a center at UAB where there was many disadvantaged patients, many of whom were non-adherent because of lack of, of financial support, there seemed to be sort of a, a strategy of, well, we have these programs in place. Let's just use them. Let's try to get the money from, you know, let's get the medication covered branded meds from these different programs. And I think that's, I guess, sort of alluded to, but it sounded like some of these things were more like, oh, I hadn't heard about that. So yeah. do you think there are resources in here that, and, you know, and I, and I don't think I'm the most know-it-all about everything, but I try to be, is there, are there resources here that we should highlight to the community on this podcast or to their programs, whether is it is this pharmacy, is this transplant social work? Because, you know, as the end provider, you know, I'm sometimes like, well, let me call social work because I don't know. What yeah, you're yeah. No, I think there are several things that we can highlight, but, you know, we broke it down to, into five sections. So the first is um, access during the hospital discharge process and then access to lifelong medication or immunosuppression, and then um, off-label access. So for our non-kidney transplant patients, um, they're facing an uphill and a tremendous battle yeah. to 
medications, especially heart, lungs, livers. So, and then not only that, we added two sections um, in addition to that, one on drug shortages and one on the patient perspective. So if there's, there's things that we should highlight, I think one of the most impactful parts of the paper is actually the, the off-label table. I, I agree. I thought I, I was going to say that that was the most fascinating kind of eye-opening presentation yeah. of, of this. I mean, I, I mean, as a liver transplant provider, I mean, almost everything is kind of non-FDA approved and off-label, and and it'd be a, it's a real struggle to to get patients the drug that you want to prescribe them, and and all of the like this just really hit home this table of things that we we go through and of course we have our you know support staff and trying to get approvals at all centers but it comes back to you know the providers to have to try to explain this and and right because you're the end user and you've got to explain to the patient we can't give you this medication or there's a delay in you getting your ivig and your eculizumab even though it's my medical recommendation but i agree i think table three is is very helpful. I really hope there can be a continued dialogue. So I'm glad that this paper just didn't say, oh, lobby your local congressman <laughs> who were tied up for the next few months with something else to try to make changes. And I thought there were some very cool practical things. And, you know, it would be a great platform at ATC to have a presentation or a, a workshop where you, where, you know, whether it's transplant pharmacy who probably knows some of these ins and outs better could do this because I, I think I agree with Josh. This is really has significant impact. And um, my only fear of that is that you'll get people saying, well, I try to get my patient this and we couldn't get it. What do you suggest? So yeah. um, it'll degenerate into too many kind of individual requests. But yeah, I thought that was that was um, interesting. And I don't you know, I don't think about I mean, Josh, you're thinking about off label and probably common maintenance immunos, I'm thinking about like the crazy things like Retox and tocilizumab and- Yeah, oh, for you know, AMR, yeah. You know. you know, out of this C4 paper, a work group has been formed through the Transplant Pharmacy Community of Practice to continue this work and to have a library of resources that can be accessed by, you know, AST and ASTS members in an in a up-to-date manner and in a useful manner as well. I think one of the other, um, the other goals of this paper was to sort of illustrate the behind the scenes, in the weeds activities that go on to get patients medications. I think sometimes um, we don't talk about all of these processes, these second and third levels of appeals, these prior authorizations every single day. So I think for some of our providers, it's it's almost as if these medications magically in our patients' hands. But we really wanted the the transplant community to see that it's a tremendous amount of work. And you know, we highlighted in here. If you look at any of our time studies and the time dedicated just on workarounds for medication access, it's a it's just so much time that's being wasted or lost and taken away from face-to-face patient care. So we really, we really wanted everyone to sort of see that, that it's, it's so much work. And then, uh, you know, Josh mentioned it, but we're so proud that this uh, C4 article has firsthand comments from patients who are telling us, you know, and contributed and who are authors on this paper who are saying, you know, I don't know what's going to happen at the 36-month mark. 
really, because once Medicare ends, and you thank goodness um, we have, you know, the the new uh, comprehensive coverage for Kidney Transplant Patients Act being reintroduced. So, you know, that was a loss of Medicare coverage was a universal theme among all of the sections. So we were just so happy to see movement there from a public policy standpoint. Well, it was really um, uh, congratulations, uh, Angela. And I know you are obviously very much involved in this area. I just uh, urge you to continue to keep doing stuff like this and bringing it to the attention of of everybody, including lawmakers. And I mean, these these are these published papers are very important to highlight issues that come from all. Uh, parties and stakeholders um, when we're trying to enact change. And it's really important to get this down on paper like you have. So, no, it, it, yeah, it, it was a labor a labor of love. And, you know, Barrett Crowther, Dave Tabor, and Lisa Potter are still very much involved with continuing this work that the C4 started. So I think anyone listening to this podcast, if you're interested in getting involved or adding to, you know, the library of resources, please contact them because they are they have developed a work group, um, which in, was announced last week through AST. And that announcement is in the is in the Transplant Pharmacy COP. If you're a non-COP yeah. member, can you still be involved? Absolutely, absolutely. So I think if you just look on there and their their email addresses are available. Um, you can email them directly and get involved. And we do want to hear voices other than pharmacists. Obviously, we want right. you know our, our administrators involved, our nephrologists, our surgeons, hepatologists, yeah. patients, everybody. Yeah. It's great to yeah. get the heart and lung community involved too, because yeah. that's yeah. a major off-label problem you know, in terms of coverage. And you know, again, I don't. I'm I'm a nephrologist, so I often just take it for granted that they have access. And another thing, just to comment from a practical perspective, it says to appeal, but when I've done that, sometimes the coordinators also should be involved because sometimes they know what are the codes, the ICD-10 codes yes. that make these things go through. Like I put antibody and rejection and it was denied, but when I said complications of kidney transplant, it went through and I was like, okay, huh. something silly like that, that caused me more, you know, headaches. So... I think practical stuff and, and would really helpful, but I appreciate the willingness to add more folks to participate. So again, who are the lead names for the ongoing project? Lisa Potter? Lisa Potter, Dave Tabor, who is the current chair of Transplant Farm COP, and then Barrett Crowther, who is the co-chair, incoming chair okay. of Transplant Farm great. COP. Yep. Oh, that's terrific. That's great. Well, thank you so much for, for being on. Um, all of that additional information is, is really helpful, too, to keep this, keep this torch going. Keep it alive, yep. Yeah. All right, so, so I'm glad we, we spent some time there. Roz and I will have to go a little quickly through the rest of the papers. We'll and see what so, we can do, right. Yeah, so why don't, so Roz, I think the start with the two proteasome papers. So I have um, Simon Tremblay as first author, Steve Woodle as senior on a prospective iterative adaptive trial of carfilzomib-based desensitization. And then what I call a companion paper by Steve Woodle as a senior author, uh, looking at proteasomal uh, adaptations following treatment in resistant bone marrow PCs. 
So I think this is sort of an exciting paper for a number of reasons. One, I know we're all tired of hearing about desensitization and what can be done, but I think the vast majority of us know that prior strategies in the highly sensitized patient, whether we use Plex and IVIG with or without rituximab, really only has a transient effect on antibody production. And there still is antibody immediate rejection frequently after and these therapies have no effect on the antibody-producing plasma cell. So this group has studied the use of protease, proteasome inhibitors, ortizumab, previously highlighting the neurotoxicity and, and as a major adverse event and the ability to reduce antibody in those, in those patients. But this is a different drug. This carfilzomib is, is a different agent. It has some modifications of its structure, so it is less neurotoxic. And it seems to have a longer, I don't want to say half-life because that may be wrong, but it has a longer standing effect on uh, plasma cells. And so this group took on um, to create a study design that basically a pilot trial, but it was a, it was a prospective, non-randomized, iterative trial, and it had an adaptive enrollment. So if any of you out there are interested in trial design, read this paper because there's some interesting aspects about it and, and an approach when you're looking at new therapies for new indications of trying to define the therapy appropriately. They had four treatment groups assigned or defined pre-treatment. And basically, when you use this iterative design, you fill one group up before you go to the next. The adaptive aspect of it is that you're doing a Bayesian statistical analysis. You're using a specific statistical analysis of that treatment group and trying to reach a specific statistical endpoint before you go to the next group. And so in this case, the minimum number of patients was five, the maximum was eight. And the, the statistical um, aspect that they had was called BSP. They were looking at a specific reduction in the immunodominant donor, donor antibody, HLA antibody in these patients and it had to be a less than 2% variation. And I'm not gonna get into the statistics because we don't have the time, but they looked at this, this specific, I guess, analytic or metric at day 53 after they had treated a bunch of subjects and the treatment groups are outlined. There were two treatment groups, A and B, shown in figure one. The differences here are they're treating patients with Plex and IVIG and carfilzomib. Group B added additional plasmapheresis before treatment with carfilzomib on the notion that you're reducing antibody load before you do treatment. They had very specific efficacy endpoints, which was reduction in the immunodominant HLA antibody. They had specific safety endpoints, and they had a lot of secondary uh, efficacy endpoints. They even had a post hoc endpoint that I'll talk about in a couple minutes that I think is really impactful and important for drug companies and individuals that are designing therapies to look at desensitization. Needless to say, they had very specific entry criteria. You could be a living donor with a positive cross-match by CDC or moderately strong flow cross-match, or you could be a weightless patient with at least a calculated PRA of greater than 30%. And there were a lot of exclusions. They enrolled out of 224 screened. I think they had 16 enrolled uh, into this trial in both arms. And I want to say that uh, that that consort diagram is shown in figure 2A, so look at it. There were a number of screen failures. By and large, 16 patients completed therapy, six in group A, which is without 
additional plasmapheresis in 10 and group D. I'm going to cut to the chase and just tell everybody that treatment with this agent led to a significant reduction in donor-specific HLA antibody. It seemed like the impact initially was highest in group A on class one and, and more so in group two when, and, and group B and treatment group B on class two. But the median reduction in immunodominant HLA antibody in both groups was about 34%. And the vast majority of patients had at least a 50% reduction in antibody. What is important to point out is that they did see rebound in immunodominant antibody after treatment around day 81. And you can see specific reductions in the MFI. There are some differences between class one and class two, which I don't think we have time to talk about. And why that is isn't entirely clear. I think if we knew that, then we'd understand it better. Those differences are shown in figure three. And importantly, they did try to do some mechanistic studies in these patients. A few patients committed to bone marrow biopsy before and after trans, uh, after treatment. And in a small group of patients, they showed a reduction in these plasma cells in the bone marrow that are the antibody providers. The most, and that was about a 70% reduction. What I thought was fascinating was the trial design the evidence of ability to reduce antibody using this agent with relatively good tolerance to the drug in the absence of neurotoxicity. This group also identified a new metric for transplant. They had what was called the donors required to match DRTM or pound sign number DRTM. And they looked at a calculation that when they reduced the, the immunodominant PRA, how many donors would they calculate this, these patients would need afterwards. And so if you look in group A, in the absence of additional plasmapheresis, it started out as like 6,000 or 7,000 donors needed to match. They got a 5-4 reduction with treatment. Group B really dramatically reduced the number of required by 200-fold. So treatment by day 53 identified a significant reduction of, and, and that's low MFI uh, immunodominant DSA. When your DSA tighter I don't want to say tighter, when your MFI was higher, and they did do titers, the full reductions were statistically significant, like two and a half fold and 126 fold. So I think the key points here in this pilot is they used a novel trial design, they showed evidence to reduce antibody, and they showed an ability in the deceased donor waitlist population to reduce the calculated number of donors that would be potential matches. There is this antibody rebound phenomena that I find fascinating. It's been shown in other studies. It's not clear to anybody why this happens, whether it's an insufficient B cell reduction of cells and those cells go on to become plasma cells, or is there leaking, you know, there's tons of antibody and it's in this interstitium of the organ. Does that leak out into the serum or plasma? Or is there, are, are there alterations in bone marrow plasma cells that prevent them from responding to the drug. And that directly leads into the second paper by Woodle, the proteasomal adaptions underlying this treatment. So this is, I'm gonna do this very quickly, but it's a good paper to go back and look at. They did a transcriptomic analysis of surviving bone marrow plasma cells identified by expression of CD138. These were plasma cells identified in the bone marrow that were resistant to carfilzomib and to suffice it to say that I thought proteasome and the structure was complicated, but not only are there constitutive expression of proteasomal units, but there are gamma interferon during inflammatory responses, inducible immunoproteasome units, the so-called I20S. 
And this group identified a specific subset of these I20S proteasomes, and there are specific inhibitors of immunoproteasomes that they identify in this paper that were previously mentioned in, in autoimmune disease, this compound ONX0914. It specifically inhibits these immunoproteasomes. And so the, the, the reason I think this is an important paper is if you look at that and you think about it is if you treat with this agent, perhaps because you have these resistant cells that develop, all probably because mother nature knows better, that maybe this additional agent may be necessary or maybe you go to this other agent. But needless to say, I, I thought these were two impactful papers about the desensitization antibody-mediated injury field and concepts that I think are sometimes overlooked when we're, when we're hypothesizing about new agents and new agent treatment. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. There's just the, I know the, the toxicities of, of these drugs has, and, and cost has been pretty substantial. Do, do you know, I was wondering if you were with, aware of this drug in the pipeline right now and its development to be able to use and clinical practice? So it is in clinical practice approved for myeloma, and I think it has a significant impact on myeloma. Now, the issue with, with the myeloma studies and my recollection in this paper, because I didn't go back and read every paper about myeloma, is a lot of those patients had had treatment resistance in other drug therapies. So carfilzomib, I know from a clinical perspective, there's been reports about it used in non-human primate uh, studies. And I want to say there was a lung transplant study where the agent was used just as a pilot okay. on, on a resistant AMR. But so is it FDA approved? Yes. But for this application, no. So I think this kind of gives the company a sense of perspective and initiative that it could maybe expand from a, from a pilot trial to a, more of a phase 2B or a phase 3 study to see you know, because I think the field has sort of stepped away a little from desensitization. They've, they've seen a couple of groups do it, and then they tried it themselves. And my sense is people, like you said, it's expensive. It's, it requires personnel to do it, and it's, it can be exhausting in terms of the patient fatigue and multiple procedures and rejection episodes. So, yes, their outcomes are better when they're transplanted. But when you look at those transplants versus any rando transplant, the outcomes are probably not as good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Angela, do you have any any questions, or we now we can move on? No, I just I think um, I any paper that talks about utilizing genomics to uh, answer questions, I'm always excited about. So the the second paper, Roz, um, I read with much interest. So I think um, the two these two together are really really impactful. So we'll get the readers to read them because I think, you know, it's just I, I love the option of hearing about a new trial design. I think that's one novel concept for the reader. The second is the use of the therapy and how it works. And the third is we don't often look at treatment failure like we don't study that. We don't get oftentimes in industry studies. We don't get paid to do that. But here yeah. was a group that said, hey, we're going to look at these people that didn't respond or why do some cells not respond? Let's sort it out. And then they found this novel mechanism. So mm. very exciting work. Like making uh, lemons into lemonade or... Absolutely. Well, I've, <laughs> I wish I had been able to learn that, but right. that's part of my career difficulty. Okay. So, right. um, so the, uh, the obesity paper. From the sublime to the maybe less sublime, but again, University of Cincinnati rocked this month. I don't know what was going on there, but <laughs> this paper by Kassam and colleagues is again from a single center 
experience in dealing with patients with obesity after sleeve gastrectomy, and it's accompanied by an editorial by one of my colleagues at UAB, uh, Babaka Randy, on tackling the weightless problem and weightless being W-E-I-G-H-T, so a little play on words. So I'll summarize this by saying that I think we're aware of the problems of obesity, the prevalence of obesity, the waiting list is about 60% right now, that there's an association with post-transplant complications, worsen graph failure, DGF rates, graph loss, and, and, and several studies. And so sleeve gastrectomy as opposed to gastric bypass has been shown to be somewhat fairly effective in weight loss management and non-end-stage patients. And so this group looked at their a, a very large retrospective single-center study of patients at Cincinnati, uh, 500 of whom had morbid obesity, about half had sleeve gastrectomy. And of those with sleeve gastrectomy, about 80% had end-stage renal disease. And I'll, I'll, as I say, cut to the chase because we're busy today. But needless to say, in the, in the patients that had sleeve gastrectomy pre-transplant, they found statistically significant improvements in multiple metabolic parameters, not just weight loss per se, but these patients had a significant reduction in hypertensive agents needed and better control. So before and after SG, and then also a significant improvement in diabetic management, meaning less insulin required or less agents to treat the, pre, the, the diabetic genic state. And also some, um, so, and, and, and in fact, the, it, it did not necessarily affect the wait times to get transplanted, but those patients post-sleeve gastrectomy did well, and there was no difference in mortality uh, following transplant after you had your sleeve gastrectomy. So I think it dispels some concerns that sleeve gastrectomy in an end-stage patient population may affect patients losing, quote, too much weight, unquote, so that if you got a transplant, you did as well as someone that on the waiting list was waiting for a kidney transplant. But clearly, they demonstrate that transplant candidacy was improved with better health, uh, better glucose control, and better blood pressure control. And uh, the editorial that accompanies it, uh, you know, highlights some of the limitations that there was relatively short follow-up, that there was incomplete metabolic analysis because this was a retrospective study. So we weren't doing very detailed metabolics. And there may be inaccuracies in the measurements of estimated GFR. In this very small patient population they, uh, that had sort of uh, advanced chronic kidney disease, but not end stage, they actually show an improvement in estimated GFR. They don't overcall it. They just say, hey, this looks cool and interesting. Maybe this is important. And maybe you know, the lack of the reduction in obesity may have less, have more potent effect on renal hyperfiltration than we realize. And Dr. Randy points out the really outstanding post-operative management of these patients that those with ESRD did relatively well after sleeve gastrectomy, which is not what's in the literature. And the question was whether this group is just so experienced or so excellent and fantastic that they actually show much better outcomes in terms of 30-day mortality, reops, and, and readmissions. That's different than the literature. But certainly the most provocative aspect he identified was this p potential to affect EGFR trajectory in chronic kidney disease patients. So that may be the fact that we're afraid to send patients for it because the higher BMI is associated with better outcome may be a notion that's in incorrect. And we won't be able to know that until we, we look at more data, either do multi-center studies or, or do a randomized study, although they did actually have a little bit of a randomization here. There were patients that just didn't want to have a procedure 
and um, and they compare sort of their outcomes, and that sort of is one of their base groups that they can look at the metabolic differences. So again, a, a notion that you can improve patients' outcomes by at least trying to get them in a healthier state pre-transplant. Yeah, I, I, I sort of parallel this to the work done in liver transplant, mainly from Julie Heimbach at Mayo, who's, and that, that was, um, those sleeve gastrectomies were not done pre-transplant because it's not safe in someone with portal hypertension, but were done at the time of the liver transplant, mainly to reduce the post-transplant weight gain. Um, it was very effective. And I, I, I imagine that probably larger studies um, and all these organ transplant populations with, with sleeve approaches, which actually now they're um, being looked at to, to potentially do this endoscopically. Which, uh, yeah. Do you think GI will be doing this, perhaps? Or just staple things? part of the stomach and make it wow. a smaller... Wow. Uh, yeah, possibly. I mean, that would kind of make sense, too, if you yeah. not put them through an operation. So, uh, very cool. All right, well, we're going to finish off with an interesting paper that I think is very... I would say provocative. Well, the, the subject matter is, and this has to do with colorectal liver metastases in performing liver transplants and coming up with criteria that could select patients better who may do better uh, with transplant. This group, um, this is the uh, the um, lead author is uh, Duland from. This is the Oslo uh, University Hospital. And if you don't know this already, um, in, in Norway, they have uh, a high access to organ donors, um, probably the most of anywhere in the world. Just a high percentage of people um, are donating. And so they have actually the one of the few places that sort of has a surplus in organ donors. So um, this group kind of has, this have already published on this. They're, they have two clinical trials where they did liver transplants for patients who had colorectal cancer metastases that had a, a slowly progressive disease with, you know, they had some criteria for CEA levels and um, tumor diameters and, and they, they could not be further resected. And they had uh, a reasonable overall uh, estimated five-year survival at 60% in their, in their trials. And of course, these, this is a very select patient population, but it, it raises the, the question of if we could have some criteria to select this patient population that they, these outcomes may parallel liver transplant for other indications like hepatocellular carcinoma or, or cirrhosis end-stage liver disease. And so what they did is they, they, they actually, um, they've already published these results, but what they did is they took, uh, they analyzed three different, uh, three, three different uh, models to look at the overall uh, survival and whether any of these models could be most predictive so that potentially moving forward, if you're designing a multi-center study, you could use the model uh, to, to choose those patients for including in future trials uh, for those who may have the best outcomes. So they had like 19 patients here. Again, the numbers are really small, but they compared three different models, uh, two clinical models. There's something called the Fong clinical risk score. Then there's an Oslo score. 
And then they looked at uh, total pet liver uptake, which is basically the metabolic tumor volume. And they looked at these each independently. There wasn't really enough patients to be able to compare them statistically head to head. But each of them are basically, um, there's a, especially with the clinical scores, uh, the lower score meant you had less likely to have significant recurrence or death after a liver transplant. So um, you got more points with each of these scores, the larger lesions, the higher CEA, more lymph node positivity, et cetera. And essentially, this is kind of a kind of a, a descriptive, relatively descriptive study. And what they what they showed with these three scores is that the Fong clinical risk score was probably the, the most uh, limiting because uh, not many patients were in this really low uh, score, which was like zero to two out of zero uh, out of six. But they, those patients had like a hundred percent five year survival. Wow. The Oslo score, which is more allowing patients to be included, had a had had a lower, but still pretty good, sixty-seven percent five-year five-year survival. Which uh, again, this is not too different than five-year survival in general of, of liver transplant recipients. And then the metabolic tumor volume that using PET scan, um, what they didn't do is combine that with these scores to you know, better estimate their survival. But the PET scan also was fairly predictive at a, at a, similar to the Oslo score. So basically what they're saying is if you have a, if, if, you, if you're really um, restricting this using the FCRS score to a very select group, you can get very high survival, but it limits the cohort to like 30% of the patients. Hmm. But if you extend it out more, you have to, Five-year survival will, will suffer, but there's a point where, you know, if you're in 60, 70% survival, you can extend this to more patients. And this was, there was an editorial from Marcus Selzner's uh, group at um, Toronto on, on this. I think this is, is definitely provocative and controversial. Certainly needs to be validated in larger studies, but I, I think an, um, a key point that Selzner makes is that this is certainly the, this is a balance of being uh, restrictive and inclusive, but because Norway has such a preponderance of organ donors, this is unlikely to result in timely liver transplant in the U.S. unless you were able to get upgrades, which there are, it would be a hard sell to do that right now. And what Selzner brings up is um, thinking about living donor liver transplantation um, given, of course, they can be done at any time. Um, you could time up uh, treatments like chemotherapy. You could stage it better. Um, and so, which I agree with, I think that this is sort of the way to go. Uh, of course, Toronto does a lot of living donor liver transplants, but this may be a way to expand uh, uh, living donor liver transplant in a very careful way. And of course, these criteria, while they seem pretty good, need to be need to be validated. But Certainly, this is something I even like three, four years ago, um, I would have sort of said, are you, are you kidding? Crazy? Are you crazy? Yeah, yeah. The overall survival, we take everybody is like 20%, but with very select criteria, they do pretty well. The other thing is that they actually, um, these patients, when they recur, don't behave like a liver cancer, like an, a, an HCC recurrence where their survival is very poor. 
often, um, they actually can be treated or re- potentially even re- resected again and have continued survival beyond that. Mm. So it's sort of a, maybe a little bit like um, neuroendocrine tumor in liver transplant, where we know that they're going to recur, but you can actually um, treat them after recurrence and continue survival. So it's sort of managing a disease, not really, you know, not really being curative, but it's man- managing a disease that would have a very short-term survival without a transplant. So very interesting. And that's about it. I don't know if you had any comments. No, this is not my area of expertise, Josh. So I defer to you when you're Terry. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, well, this was excellent. Uh, a lot of uh, great topics today. And we thank uh, Angela and Roz for talking about the papers. And we, we very much look forward to next month's AJT highlights in March. So thank you, everybody. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 